This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, away we go. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Joining us in the house, John Carmichael, Canadian business leader and former conservative member of parliament. Big John, good to see you again. John, good to be with you as always. Thank you for that. Michael Diamond is a campaign strategist and political commentator with Upstream Strategy Group. How's the Diamond man? I'm happy to be here. Good to have you here. And Alyssa Freeman rounding out the panel, PR and pop culture media expert. How do, Ms. Alyssa? I do fine. Thank you for asking, John. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, uh, not everybody may be as chuffed as you folks are. I'm thinking, you know, the conservatives were looking to uh, make political capital or hay on the fact that uh, the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, came out with a rather damning indictment of the liberals. And uh, I guess they were anticipating that the polls would reflect that. But lo and behold, we've got a result now from a poll conducted exclusively for Global News by the Ipsos people. And what it found was that the liberals and conservatives are in a virtual dead heat. And the liberals are actually up two points since last month to 33 percent of the decided vote. And the Tories at 35 percent, a two point drop. Now, uh, the president of Ipsos Public Affairs, Mike College, was on Global News Radio earlier today with Kelly Cotrera, and uh, he suggests that what this scenario might lead to is, gulp, a minority government. I think right now you'd have to say if you look, if, it, if the vote held this way today, we would have a minority one way or the other, and a lot depends on some of those splits, right? You know, if the NDP gets a little bit stronger, suddenly you see liberal liberals' fortunes drop down, the NDP drops off, conservative fortunes. Uh, um, or the liberal fortunes can come back up. So I think, yeah, right now we're in a minority territory. All right, because it's a dead heat. Uh, In Quebec, the liberals have a prohibitive lead of about 18 points. It's a lot tighter here in Ontario. And, I mean, some some of the explanation is that uh, when Justin Trudeau staked out that he was just protecting jobs, that seems to resonate in Quebec. John, I'll ask you, first of all, you've uh, done your tour of duty in the halls of power up there in Ottawa. I mean, are you surprised by this, uh, or perhaps surprised that this ethics commissioner's findings haven't been more deleterious or damaging to the Liberal brand. John, I listened to um, Jonathan Kay on your program yesterday, and what a compelling argument for just how corrupt this current government is, and I am surprised that it hasn't been more uh, more effective in the polls. But yet, we know that the coming election is going to be a very tight race. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, Trudeau's playing to Quebec, there's no doubt about it, but 37% of Canadians want change in Ottawa. That, to me, is a very encouraging uh, uh, number if it's if it's factual, and that came out of Ipsos as well. I think uh, I think Trudeau's playing to Papineau. I think he's playing to Quebec, and uh, I think the uh, maybe maybe those in Quebec just aren't as uh, aren't as sensitive to corruption and scandal as the rest of Canada. All right, uh, the, you lead uh, me with a big opening there, and I won't, I won't take the bait this time. But I'll ask my friend Michael Diamond with Upstream Strategy because you're a political strategist. I mean, uh, so for Trudeau to dig in his heels and not apologize, uh, is it making sense now? Uh, if they're perceiving this in a bigger picture, that it's not as harmful to them as maybe some of us here in this part of the country might feel. Uh, 
What do you see going on here with these results and how Trudeau's playing it? So, so a number of things. I think to understand the impact of this whole scandal on polling results, you have to look back to December, uh, really before the, the last poll done by Ipsos, before this scandal became known. And in that poll, the Liberals were at 38 percent and had a very commanding nation, uh, countrywide lead over over the Conservatives. And we've seen that switch and tighten up. But I think a lot of the uh, polling uh, positions today is because of dissatisfaction with Justin Trudeau, in part because of that uh, SNC scandal. So the ethics commissioner's report, one, the time of the polling, it was pretty new. So I think the next poll will give us a better uh, understanding of that. But I think people's positions on this uh, was already pretty baked in into the polling number. Uh, should the prime minister apologize? You know, it's the right thing to do. But uh, uh, this is a guy who will apologize for absolutely everything except for things that are actually his fault. Well, all right. Uh, so the lack of an apology, what the poll tends to result, hasn't hurt him, uh, certainly not in Quebec and elsewise, even though you say the numbers have maybe uh, switched up a little bit. It's an online poll. I don't know if we take that under advisement. Does that mean anything in terms of whether or not this is really uh, something that we can base a credible snapshot on at this point in time, Alyssa? I think it is a credible snapshot, and most polls right now are online, to be quite honest. Um, I think that one of the reasons, first of all, I was one of those people who were called. Uh, I think it was early in the morning when the report, the Lavalin report was first uh, released, and I'm like, okay, are, are, are you going to vote for Trudeau based on the recent allegations? And my, my answer was, well, which ones would those be? So, you know, it was very early, actually, when they did the calling, if this is the same report. Um, now, but even so, I felt that, first of all, this is a very long saga. And every time a media outlet, mainly print, tried to explain it, it would be a center spread and it would show a timeline with all sorts of explanations. So it was a bit hard for people to unpack and really dig into the long run. So I do take Michael's point under advisement that, you know what, it was a little bit early when they did the polling, and I can personally attest to that. But I think that, and and it is shocking, but also it shows to, you know, what people can't really dig into and maybe fully understand, it doesn't uh, necessarily affect their opinion. And the other thing, too, is, is that even when those findings came out from Dion's report... Andrew Shear certainly wasn't at his hell-bent best, as I felt that he could have been. I mean, there's been a lot that's landed on, uh, for him on a silver platter, and he's never really been able to get behind that with any sort of, I don't know, um, volatility or, or, or something that really makes people stand up and take notice. Passionate outrage? Passionate outrage, exactly. All right, uh, so is this over then? Is it a case of the libs are, are free and clear of any lingering stand? on the matter, John? I don't believe so. I think this is going to go on right till Election Day, and I think that uh, the Conservatives are going to continue to hammer at this and the other scandals that have been part of this uh, administration, and I think it's just a matter of time. Let's wait and see. I, the one the one thought I have, and, and Michael would also be uh, interested to, uh, to chip in on this, um, polling's been suspect the last number of elections. I think when we start to hear numbers are close and whatnot, I I think there are a lot of people that are sitting out there right now that are waiting to see sort of how this unfolds in the last few weeks. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of voters are going to go to the to the uh, booth and make their decision as they walk in the door. 
John is right that online polling does also tend to skew a little to the the left. So I think, uh, you know, all we know is that this is going to be a very close election. And when you both talk about all these Trudeau scandals, I look forward to a time when we're talking to maybe my grandchildren one day and we're going to refer to the years between 2015 and 2019 as Trudeau gate. Well, <laughs> just just in general terms, the whole mandate is Trudeau Gate. Eh? Well, the ethics committee's meeting tomorrow, and uh, I just don't know if this is going to have anything to uh, do with anything because, well, again, the poll might reflect that uh, positions are already solidified. Maybe the liberals take heart and say, you know, we can just shut this down like we did the previous committees and uh, move on. Nothing more to see here, folks. I know that our friend Peter Kent, uh, he along with another former colleague of yours, John, asked for this special meeting of uh, Mr. Zimmer to convene it. He's the chair, but it's still stacked with liberals, and like they did the other time, they've got the majority. They can just shut it down. Where do you foresee this one going? Well, I, I think you're going to see the same thing. I, I'm going to guess that this latest polls embolden the liberals, and they're just going to uh, they're going to play hardball and shut it down. I don't think they'll see it through because I don't think Trudeau is going to allow that to happen. I think that where this this might have a little bit of a pitfalls a during the debates, depending how strong the other candidates are. Number one and number two, Jody Wilson Raybould has a book tour going, coming up. And, That's huge, and that will yeah. be huge, and that is a bit of an outlier. And you know, to respond to that, your messaging has to be right on. You have to be absolutely solid. And I'm not sure. I think that that could be uh, a bit of a fly in the ointment. Well, so, we, I'm sorry, John. I was just going to say, you know, a fly in the ointment. I think what happened with the ethics commissioner's findings, she became painted as an even more sympathetic figure. The way they were trying to do her dirt and an end run around her. And uh, she's one of the former flock or fold, and it's not necessarily being pilloried by the conservative ranks, but this is, you know, somebody that uh, they pretty much cast aside there and uh, banished her in exile. (laughs) So that's a different dynamic, I think, playing out than just being uh, attacked by the opposition. Well, and every media outlet has actually gone to her riding and they've done the sort of the streeters, the person on the street, would you vote again for her? And she has overwhelmingly a lot of support and sentiment out there. So, I mean, that is just in her riding, how that plays across the country. And she will. She will go from one end of the country to the other, repeating the same messages, answering the same questions on every interview. And every time that happens, the liberals will either stay silent or they will have to respond. All right, we'll come back, and uh, there's something else for which Justin Trudeau and the Liberals will have to respond. It could be a little bit of an awkward moment or three uh, if it happens in the campaign, and I'm anticipating it will. So we'll get to that as our next topic worthy of discussion here with our panel, Michael Diamond, Alyssa Freeman, John Carmichael, on The Oakley Show, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. All right, let's get back into it. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636 with our panel, Michael Diamond, Alyssa Freeman, and John Carmichael. John, let me ask you, uh, again, having uh, pulled, you know, uh, a tour of duty there in the House of Commons and uh, under the Conservative banner for four years, you know how the game is played in the trenches. Now, when it comes to campaigning, there seems to be another issue that Justin Trudeau will have to confront, uh, having famously said back in 2017, a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. Now you got this individual, Jihadi Jack, Jack Letts, whose father was a Canadian. Kid was born in the UK, happened to be reared there and also radicalized there, went off in 2012, joined ISIS. When the caliphate fell, he was captured, now being held by uh, Kurdish forces for about the last 30 months. But the Brits stripped him on the weekend of his citizenship. So he's no longer a British citizen, but he still retains his Canadian citizenship, as tenuous as it may seem. 
but he wants to come to Canada now. Well, I mean, you know, where else is he going to go at this point unless the Kurds keep him indefinitely? And Justin Trudeau, having said a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian, does he repatriate him? How do you think he's going to square this circle or address this conundrum? I, I think this is one of those issues that has every Canadian will will pay attention to. I, I think this is such a hot issue, hot topic. This guy's a terrorist, no matter how you cut it. Um, he's spending time in jail over there in uh, under Kurdish uh, control, and uh, I, I can't imagine that even Trudeau would bring him back here. Well, okay, uh, it may be a little sensitive during the election campaign, but shortly thereafter, uh, if passed as prologue, who knows? Uh, what do you see, Michael Diamond? Well, I'd personally send him. There's a coastal resort in Cuba that's appropriate for a fellow like this called Guantanamo Bay. But my fear is that Justin Trudeau not only will bring him back, but based on his track record, give him a big pile of cash. So, uh, you know, this is a prime minister who's way out of touch with the Canadian people on uh, the honor and responsibility that should uh, go hand-in-hand with Canadian citizenship. Uh, This would be a big loser for him in the election. Let's hope that he's not around to uh, deal with it after. All right. So if it were to be a big loser in the election, uh, it seems like Andrew Scheer has already put a marker down saying there's no way on God's gray earth he would repatriate him. But if he's got Justin Trudeau hoisting his own petard because he's already repatriated others or suggested they deserve to come back, even though, you know, he's suggesting they would serve their time here because, you know, joining a terrorist outfit overseas is a crime after all. Uh, does Andrew Scheer press him on this point and try to make political hay out of it and say, how would you deal with this? Yes, and I think that Andrew Scheer has to pressure him on every point that's handed to him on a silver platter. Um, I heard uh, Ralph Goodell on the way down, and, and and he was saying there's no way that he's ever going to come back to Canada. So that was just according to, I don't know, about 20 minutes ago. But I think that Andrew Scheer has to take all of these narratives and really just drive them home and hopefully find something that really creates a connection and resonates with the Canadian people. So it, it's like somebody, you know, at a at playing baseball and keep hitting so that you can you can catch it. I, you know, that's exactly what this is. This is a real law ball. So he should absolutely keep pressing the issue. All right. If people will care about that, or do you think, I mean, the economy, uh, there have been some ominous notes in the last week or so that it's going to soften and so on and so on. That could eclipse all of these things, all of these emotional triggers, I'm suggesting. And uh, you think ultimately people vote with their wallets. John, I mean, well, I, I think it, I think that's a real issue. There's a lot of talk of recession, but I don't think it's fast enough that it's going to affect uh, the election to that degree. I think an issue like this really hits at the heart of Canadians. We lost so many Canadians who died to make this country free and to turn around and allow somebody like this. If Trudeau ever did that, I think that would be the end of him. All right, well, it's the virtue signaling uh, that he's exhibited in the past. I'm Again, going to reiterate, I don't think there's any way in God's gray earth he's going to repatriate the dude before the election. Uh, but if it's something that Andrew Scheer could keep pressing him on to get a definitive answer, uh, could lead to a lot of ums and uhs, couldn't it, Michael? Absolutely, and he won't get a definitive answer because Justin Trudeau would have to worry about the people he's virtue signaling towards. So it, it's a, a rock and a hard place for him. And I think that it's actually a sleeper issue in Canada right now is is what Canadians believe should be the uh, honor and responsibilities that go hand in hand with citizenship and rethinking the way we grow our Canadian family, which I think everyone thinks is important, but we can just 
apply a bit more common sense to it. Justin Trudeau refuses to have a common sense uh, conversation about this. It's what Canadian wants. So I think it would be a very good place for Andrew Scheer to press. Uh, on the economy, people absolutely uh, vote for uh, vote with their wallets. And last election, in fact, the economy, because of the government John served in, was in such good position that the risk of electing Justin Trudeau was zero. So even media speculation and economist speculation about a potential uh, recession or downturn, I think, will, will put the fear of God into voters that we can't have as Kevin O'Leary used to call him, surfer dude as Prime Minister, and actually look for some serious options because uh, it was that uh, security of our economy that allowed Justin Trudeau to be a low-risk proposition. Well, you know, sorry, it's it's interesting because when we're looking at the type of narratives that are going to go come fast and heavy, you know, once the writ is dropped, I am hoping that the Conservatives can put together something that is coherent and stronger than it needs to, that, and very strong, so that it doesn't necessarily need to be on the shoulders of Andrew Scheer, you know, with a with a very good campaign and a really strong narrative blasting out on the airwaves, if you're just depending on one person to deliver it, which has been the case up to now, not everything lands very strongly. But if you can come up with the type of commercial advertising that conservatives are really notorious in a way of being able to do very well, that could actually change uh, change the narrative. And if you're going to go on that whole economic narrative, then the way you have positioned that is 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 very strong. And also, even you know, when when I listen to my my two panelists who are very very steeped on that side of the uh, of the table and that ideology. When I hear you talk about, you know, yes, he's brought home uh, Omar Khadr and it would be a shame to all vets. And, you know, you talk the way that it strikes a chord with the average Canadian voter. And it's those type of things that need to be packaged a little bit more succinctly than they have been to date. Well, you know, when you talk about those emotional triggers, uh, I guess you could say from the Liberals' point of view, they think that Doug Ford fits the bill for them, and uh, needless to say, Justin Trudeau was in these parts late last week, and he was hammering away on that. He was trying to draw the Doug Ford uh, factor into the equation again, and some people were saying, well, you know, now that he's got his uh, the whole thing with the ethics findings on the plate, uh, Doug Ford is really going to be minimized. I think he disregarded that. He's still going after Ford, and uh, he's hoping to make him the pinata that he whacks successfully, especially in the vote-rich 905. Michael Diamond, uh, how do you think that's going to play out? I mean, is that going to have legs and sustain itself right up to Election Day? Look, uh, picking an opponent who's not your actual opponent is a, a tried-and-true and old, old method. Uh, Kathleen Wynne decided instead of running against Tim Hudak, she was going to run against Stephen Harper because it's easier to run against someone who's not in the race against you because they're not going to defend themselves as vigorously. I think one of the differences is that Doug Ford's a political animal, loves campaigning. Like, this is a guy who uh, an election is uh, like the Super Bowl wrapped up with a trip to Disney World uh, for... So I, I wouldn't count, if I was Justin Trudeau, on having Doug Ford on the sidelines if he thinks he's going to uh, uh, use him as his pinata. It won't work out the same way it did in the past. Here's another factor in the equation. i got to share this with you because uh, Unifor, the union, uh, Jerry Diaz heads it. Uh, they've got some journalists in the fold that they represent, about 12,000 in total, and media workers. He says they're going to launch an aggressive anti-conservative campaign, uh, but the partisanship of doing so is... Uh, somewhat disconcerting to their members uh, because they're journalists and they feel that this might compromise their integrity or status as being objective, you know, fair and balanced and uh, at arm's length and so on and so forth. Diaz says, quote, we will not tell members how to vote, but I will be speaking out against the conservative party. 
Journalists, my own communication staff, even our Atlantic Regional Director Lana Payne, a former journalist, have all explained to me why our union's partisan stance makes some of you uncomfortable. I hear you. Nonetheless, he's going ahead, and just as a kicker, last May, the Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, named Unifor as one of the eight panel members who would decide who the government should dispense the $600 million to the media fund, you know, to prop up legacy media that's uh, obviously in free fall. Does this in some way, shape, or form uh, compromise, you know, the journalists that Unifor represents? Does it put them in an awkward position, John? Oh, I think absolutely it does. I, I think there are journalists across this country who who want to have their own voice, and uh, and this guy's taking that away from them. He may not tell them how to vote, but he's sure telling them how journalists vote as a rule through his uh, through the Unifor um, membership. I, I also think that um, having Jerry Diaz on the panel dispensing the six hundred million dollars is one of the worst travesties we've seen in the past year and a half. And again, that's a Trudeau scandal that, to me, we haven't seen a lot of air on, and I, I think that's got to be made. Okay, uh, they're on made an whole. advisory panel. Then yeah, there's somebody on else. an advisory panel, but they still have a voice. There's influence there. There's influence. Well, well, no, I understand. You know, I'm not suggesting it's arm's length, but it's sort of uh, a third party that advises who these uh, people are then that pick who gets the money. So, uh, yes, it is sort of by osmosis. They're still implicated in the whole judgment of it. And union dues being used unilaterally this way, you know, just in general terms, I think a lot of people have complained that sometimes their unions stake out positions that are uh, contrary to their own, and they feel like, geez, you know, I'm putting the money in, uh, but that's not what I want my money to support. How does that, you know, I've had union people call me earlier today when I first broached this off the top, and... uh, a lot of them are out and out dismayed and even, you know, with own, Diaz's own union uniform. I think that you hit the nail on the head when I think that some of this has gone to Diaz's uh, own head, to be quite honest. First of all, he was uh, named on this advisory panel. Call it what you will. Will that resonate with Canadians? In answer to your question, John, in my opinion, no, because it's just an insider's issue and, and they don't care. Uh, I think that Diaz has also seen the power of the commercials that he has put out so far and how they have resonated so deeply with Ontarians, so effective that, you know, Trudeau himself is co-op it and using it as one of his narrative lines when he comes out swinging against board. So Diaz sort of sees himself at the controls here. He's a little bit of the puppet master. So while people may de- may be dismayed of uh, what he's doing and who he's going after, I don't think anything is going to stop him. Nothing can stop him because his uh, union, the membership is not voluntary, so the dues are not voluntary, so he views it as his pool of money. So so it's completely unfair to the members who he's putting into, at the very best case scenario, a perceived conflict of interest. It's but, very unfair to uh, to the journalists. But he doesn't care what people think no, of him, is what I'm to, saying. because the money flows. I, I understand that, yeah. but some people would think, oh, you know, not that many people are starting to like me, this could bite me in the butt, you know, come you know down the road. But I don't think he's looking so far down the road. Well, yeah, and this is not really uh, something that's extraordinary. We've seen it with the teachers' unions in provincial elections, but in this instance, it's because the union also represents journalists, and the journalists want to retain an arm's-length status or perception, and in this case, it looks like they've been co-opted. So that's the point. So to Alyssa's point, that not many Canadians are going to take notice of this, what about if Canadians are reading their news or listening to their news, and they're thinking... Where's this coming from? Is this coming from Jerry Diaz and the money that was thrown in here? Is this part of where all journalists are moving to the left and supporting a Trudeau government? I mean, I I, I think 
Canadians are smarter than that, and we've we've got to give them credit. They're going to hear it. But I think that Canadians are used to knowing of a certain political stance of all the media that they consume. Yeah. I think that when they read the National Post, they're going to get a certain stance. When they read the Global Mail, when they read their local newspaper, when they go on different websites, I think that Canadians are pretty savvy as to what um, politicized messages they're getting from what media outlet. Will they look at it as a collective? I don't know. Yeah, but who gets to decide who lives and dies in terms of the legacy media? I mean, this is Jerry something. Diaz, apparently. Well, yeah, he's, apparently. Just, he's, he's one of the uh, eight, I guess, on the advisory panel. But, uh, yeah, there's obviously something here that uh, seems amiss to me. Let's come back and uh, continue to pursue more topics worthy of discussion in a moment with our panel, Michael Diamond, Alyssa Freeman, and John Carmichael. All right, we're back into the fray with our panel, Michael Diamond, Alyssa Freeman, and John Carmichael. Two of whom have actually been to High Street uh, for the fish and chips and the meat pies. Whoa. <laughs> really, Michael? Not well, you. Okay, so now yeah, we I know, know I'm uh, going to get directions there now, though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, I'm going to give them to you. As, and, and if you drive, you know there's a lot of free parking, too, in the Donwood Plaza. Don don't Mills. go on a Monday. Don't go it's on a Monday. It's closed. It's closed. That you found out the hard way. Didn't you, John? You right. found I did. Who did you? I did. You were going to take over a whole crew on a Monday. Well, I took two of my colleagues over. We went on it. Well, we went on a Monday. We went back the next week on Tuesday. Good. And uh, it was fabulous. We even stayed for dessert. Oh, but don't you? tell anybody. I won't. Uh, you don't have to worry about me broadcasting anything. Uh, but it is. It, may, it leads you to uh, say that anything on the menu is can't miss, and the desserts certainly are the capper. What did you have for dessert, by the way? Uh, the sticky uh, toffee. toffee. Yeah, again, I can't. I, oh, I don't want to get going there tonight. <laughs> I'm going back over for dessert. Tonight. Yeah, you're not going home, is what you're not doing. All right, the sticky toffee pudding is off the charts. It's it as good as everything else in the menu: the fish and chips and the meat pies baked from scratch. Because Sharon in the back, she bakes all of these things lovingly by hand. This is a real hands-on operation. But they. Source the best products on the planet, no less, when it comes to the fish. you got wild-caught halibut from Alaska, and you've got the haddock from the Bay of Fundy. And uh, they even make their own fish cakes and the black pudding, the haggis, you know, for authenticity. It's there on the menu. John, need I remind you? Let's go. Or unless I know I'm trying to... <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I already know what I'm ordering. I'm you, sitting here thinking about it. They've got a kid's menu, too. Uh, kid's meals for 12 and under. It's all... Part of a great dining experience at High Street. Open Tuesdays to Saturdays and fully licensed, John. Don't miss it. That's it. Uh, take the DVP, Michael, to Lawrence Avenue <laughs> and go east. East one set of lights. At that light north on Underhill, around the bend, you'll find High Street, Donwood Plaza, Don Mills. Let me ask you about something else that, uh, by the way, speaking of streets, uh, Etobicoke is now looking into, I guess, city council, whether or not they've got a, a, a list that they've uh, of street names, uh, I guess three that they're looking specifically to in uh, Etobicoke North, and Rob Ford's name has come up for consideration again. You remember the resistance to it back in, I guess it was uh, 2000, and 17, just a year after he had passed, and a lot of people were uh, downplaying it, all the uh, negative nabobs there on city council from the left. But uh, has enough time passed that he's it, he merits consideration for a street name, Michael? There was no need for time to pass. What city council did in 2017 was disgusting, and so I'm glad to see this be reconsidered. Absolutely, they should name a street after him. It was unfortunate that bullies on city council who changed the rules to allow, uh, because usually there's a certain amount of time that needs to pass, they actually in one vote changed the rules to rename a park after former city councilor Pam McConnell, who passed just around the same time. That was the right thing to do, and then refused to do that to rename Centennial Stadium after uh, Rob Ford. It was 
mean, it was vindictive, it was partisan. So I'm really glad to see this happen, that we can't change the past, but this is the right way to uh, move forward and uh, name something in honor of a guy who did a lot for that community and the city. All right. Do we get big amens for that, or uh, should there be other considerations? I mean, they've also included some names. Uh, There's going to be an indigenous name that's included uh, because it's the traditional lands of the Mississauga First Nation uh, around Etobicoke Creek. So they're saying that's uh, one of the three. There's Jerry Howarth as well, longtime Blue Jays announcer for 30 That's a good one. Okay, and uh, well, then you're going to have to leave some folks out, uh, one of whom was a graphic artist of note. I guess he had contributed to Superman and Batman, but perhaps doesn't make the public radar the way these other individuals have in a populist way. I, I think uh, I think it is time for Rob Ford's name to be why memorialized. Not? And Honestly, why not? Why not? For, for, he had his issues, but at the end of the day, he did some great work, and uh, let's kudos where they belong. Give him his credit and and uh, recognize him. That's his community. It just Absolutely. makes so much sense. I mean, if you want to name for Jerry Howard, do it closer to the stadium. That makes sense to me because people would would obviously you know make that um, make that connection. Absolutely, his name should be considered right. Much beloved in Etobicoke North. Uh, speaking of names, Roy Thompson Hall, uh, we know named after the uh, patriarch of the Thompson family. You know that's going to be the home venue for the Toronto Defiant. They announced that today. Uh, Roy Thompson Hall is where they're going to play their home games next year. This is an eSports Toronto franchise in the Overwatch League, and they play Overwatch. And uh, the league includes about 20 teams. And as I understand it, you've got uh, the Paris Eternal, Florida Mayhem, London Spitfire, Philadelphia Fusion, Boston Uprising, Washington Justice, Atlanta Rain. R-E-I-G-N. You're shaking your head, Michael Diamond. Now, what I was told earlier today by somebody who runs uh, the eSports arena at Durham College, they actually have a curriculum dedicated to uh, preparing young people for a vocation in this because it's growing like Topsy. And in fact, it was right here at the now Scotiabank Arena two years ago, I think it was, when they held an eSports competition and sold the place out. To each their own, but I miss the country I grew up in, and this is just uh, goofy to me, you know, and uh, I I don't get it. Good on those who are making money off of it, but, uh, you know, go pick up a ball or something, kids. Okay, well, those people are never going to pick up a ball, and they like to sit in their rooms and and have their lunch and and not move, and I have Mm -hmm. to tell you that... You know, this esports, I think it's past the phenomena change a stage. I think that this is here to stay. It's happening all over the U.S. These uh, arenas are selling out. It is absolutely huge. And there's been a lot of people who've been started to back this and ride this wave. I don't think it's going away. But when you said it was called the Toronto Defiant, I wasn't sure if that was the leftist members of the council or not. But then Whoa. you told me it was esports. So. <laughs> We're going to have to cut that in half again. <laughs> you worked that in. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, when I was talking earlier to uh, the woman who had the program up at Durham, Durham College, and uh, I talked about the Toronto franchise. She said there's only one Canadian involved. Uh, most are recruited from South Korea or East Asia, and uh, so it's global in uh, reach and uh, scope and magnitude and everything like that. And there are big, big dollars involved here, A, from the supporters of the franchises, even recruiting these players to play. Uh, they could actually replicate the careers of hockey players, baseball players, basketball. Seriously, I mean, there was a 16-year-old kid, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Didn't he win? A couple million. Yeah, $3 million. Yeah, for Fortnite or something like that. Anyway, long story short, uh, as Alyssa says, it's here to stay. But do you consider these individuals athletes? Because that that was a discussion that we had, uh, you know, 
you've got to have like acuity, uh, mental acuity, and uh, certain, you know, dimensional perception and so on and so forth. Does that constitute an athlete, John? I struggle with it. I uh, I don't think so, but uh, I'm hoping the Leafs will pay Mitch Marner the extra dough and get him signed up <laughs> real quick because this is their year. That's a real athlete. Oh, really? So you don't think that there's anything here to uh, draw an analogy to Mitch Marner or Kawhi Leonard or anything like I'm that? There. Sounds like in future uh, pay prospects, perhaps, but uh, let's not confuse a skill set with uh, being athletic. Okay, well, I just wanted to check this, but breakdancing is about to become a sport at the Olympics, so I don't know. My original my original answer to you is no, they're not athletes, but uh, breakdancers are now athletes. And are they one call step, you? Uh, the breakdancers? Yeah, they want you? No. No. Just for the break part, but that'd be it. Well, yeah, but, you know, back in the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, I think... Uh, Doing the waltz or dancing was considered ballroom dancing was yeah. a spectator sport. So, I mean, these are the things that are sort of now uh, making incursions into what we consider legacy sports because there's heavy participation. And if there's heavy participation, particularly in Asia, this is why these arenas sell out and everything like that. Uh, you got to get with the program, Diamond. Maybe this is the vanguard and you're missing the boat. Oh, I'm missing the boat big time. <laughs> you got to get upstream. Come on. Come on. Come on, Michael. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave it at that. I just thought I'd bring that up to you because uh, we had a rather interesting discussion with a woman from Durham College earlier today. We're done for the day, and this discussion, another great one. I appreciate it. Michael Diamond, Alyssa Freeman, and John Carmichael. And to uh, the folks behind the scenes who made it possible, Carolina Podolak and Dusty Lawless and you. We'll do it again tomorrow after 3. Have a great night all. Global News at 6 is up next. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.